0: All right. I feel naked without my headphones. Do you want to wear headphones? Just I, to- I, I said,
1: yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to
0: wear headphones. Benson's got some earmuffs for you yeah. to put on. <laughs>
2: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Acquired, the show about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. As we mentioned in December, we're moving to a seasons format where we can do multi-episode themes and mini-series across episodes. This season's mini-series is on startup fundraising. So to date, we've exclusively talked about exits on the show, and we've glossed over plenty of fundraising events as part of these stories, but we've never really dug in. How do these rounds come together? What's the process? And what do different types of fundraising rounds allow a company to do? So our first episode is about the series seed of one of the most prominent VR companies in the market Against Gravity, the makers of Rec Room. And we are super, super fortunate to have with us today, the co-founder and CEO of Against Gravity, Nick Fight. Nick is the co-founder and CEO of Against Gravity, as I mentioned. They're the makers of Rec Room, which is the VR social club where you can play active games with people from around the world. Rec Room is available on the HTC Vive, the Oculus Rift, and the PlayStation VR. And before that, Nick was a principal program manager at Microsoft working on HoloLens and Forza Motorsport.
1: We're excited to have Nick with us. Longtime fans and listeners of the show might recognize rec from our oculus episode uh, and we are excited yeah, to thanks for the shout out dig in further here <laughs> that was back when well you weren't you weren't raising your round during that time but it was shortly thereafter
2: yeah i think it was shortly yes yeah. so this after, is almost
1: yeah. like a, you know almost like a follow-up here this is great <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right well david this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies Statsig.
1: yes when we had vj on acq2 earlier this year they were Already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we
2: get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight.
1: Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion
2: Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than
1: at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics.
2: Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com/slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. David, you ready to dive in? As always, Ben. All right. So the history and facts. Uh, normally, we narrate a lot of this section and tell the the company history for people. But Nick, since we've got you here, would love to just hear what is against gravity and what do you guys do? Sure. So, Against Gravity makes Rec Room, which is a virtual reality social club
0: where people from around the world can meet up in thousands of different rooms, and each room is a different experience. There are rooms for sports games, shooters, adventures to go on with your friends, clubhouses, uh, escape rooms, comedy clubs, and some of these rooms are made by us, but increasingly more
2: and more are made by the community themselves. Cool, and it's it's my understanding Rec Room's pretty popular among people with VR rigs, right? Rec Room is is a pretty popular
0: VR app across uh, Steam, which is for the Vive, uh, Oculus, and then uh, yeah, PlayStation.
1: It is super fun. Uh, I'm actually excited. One of the Saddest parts about moving to San Francisco for me is in our new office, we do not have a VR setup and and our apartment is too small being in San Francisco (laughs) to have a VR setup. So I have missed all the uh, awesome things that you guys ship, you know, seemingly on a weekly basis. Um, But listeners, I know we've talked about it before. If you haven't tried out Rec Room Go out there and
0: it's very free. It's, <laughs> it's priced. It
1: is venture capital subsidized, as yeah. we we're going to talk about now. <laughs> it's great. It's super fun.
2: Well, David, that's a that's a great transition. So, you know, Nick, we're we're covering um the your seed round on this episode. Catch us up. How has Against Gravity been capitalized to date? So early on we did a convertible note with friends and family and and actually
0: quite a few former coworkers as well. Uh, we were really fortunate in that um, a lot of people wanted to participate and get in on that. And we were able to raise uh, almost a million dollars on that convertible note. And that that got us quite a good way as we were able to uh, get set up with equipment, get our development going. And we were actually able to launch the app and support it for a couple months after launch as well. Um, we were also able to make some, some key hires and, uh, that, that really, that really got us out in, into the public and got us some, some customers, uh, shortly after that rec room was doing pretty well in the market. And there was definitely a, a group of people that were really passionate about it. And so we started chatting with institutional investors, um, looking to do a, a longer round to really extend runway and, you know, get to a, a point in time where the vr market was significantly larger and um, we had we had a lot of people participate in that um we had several from seattle so we had vulcan mavron and asequia and we had several from from outside seattle we had first round betaworks anorak the vr fund and then in that round as well sequoia ended up coming in um in a a pretty big way and actually joining our board
1: we'll force you to go even farther back and talk about you know leaving microsoft and starting the company but uh you know, I remember, you know, when you had raised that initial million dollars, and then you built and shipped the product. Like, you guys made so much progress on on so little money. You got the product shipped, and this was in the relatively early days of VR, um, where it wasn't like totally obvious how to how to build this stuff. I've always been curious. How did you make so much progress, like, with so little resources, uh, in just a few months uh, when you started the company?
0: I I have amazing co-founders. So uh, while I was out. Trying to collect checks <laughs> from from friends and family, um, my my coworkers did just amazing work. They they were able to pull together, um, you know, from from a blank white slate of paper to to. There's an app that's shipped um, that that a good portion of the VR audience was was playing. They they managed to do that in 90 days. So it went from. You know, blank slate to product in market in in ninety days. One of the phrases that we use a lot at that company is "ready fire aim," um, which really <laughs> describes our development process. I, I think really what a lot of people would view that as not a good thing, but <laughs> we really we really embrace it. I think I think it it encapsulates our our thought that you know, it's really hard to aim and hit perfection and it's really hard to hit perfection on the, on the first try. Uh, so what we look for is, can we just make tiny improvements through each iteration? And, and really our focus is on how can we get the iteration speed up? So from the beginning, what we were lo- really looking for was, you know, as soon as this thing compiles, can we, can we push it out <laughs> to the public? It? Yeah. And yeah. then, and then can we get feedback on it? Can we get, mm. can we get it a sense of what people like and what they don't like? And, and can we address that this afternoon that was really the way that we approached it and and that's the way we've been Developing Rec Room for, for almost the past two cool. years now.
2: It's so funny about uh, something specific to Rec Room for user feedback. You were taking me some of the new, new uh, through the new features on Saturday, and people kept coming up to us. And you know, Nick, you don't have any like special thing above your head or anything indicating like I'm the founder. But you know, people are just coming up to us and telling us things and asking us questions, saying, "Oh, can I join your party?" Or like, "How do you do this?" And a lot of people like just very vocal and very communicative. So. I have to imagine from the earliest days, like you didn't have to work very hard to get user feedback. No, but the, the community has been
0: wonderful in telling us, you know, what what they want both in Rec Room and outside of Rec Room. We we have a very active Discord uh, that we we manage. We have a very active Reddit that we manage. And and generally what we're trying to do is when people give us feedback, we're trying to react to it in the, the, the tightest timeline possible. So when, when they ask us for something and we think, like this, this could meaningfully change the the experience. We try to get it in there as quick as possible, and let let those users know, like, hey, thank you for the the feedback. Thank you for the ideas.
1: You know, your ideas in there now. Like, now go check it out. Yeah. Let, wow. yeah, let us know the next thing we should fix. Um, <laughs> you and all your co-founders were all at Microsoft together, right? How did the team come together? And and how long were you thinking about it before you left? What catalyzed you guys to make the jump? So my my background at Microsoft, I. I came to Microsoft right out of college
0: and I spent a couple of years working on a, a series called Forza Motorsport there, which is a racing game for the Xbox. That was a really awesome experience. I got to see what, what AAA game development looks like. And then um, after a couple of those games, I moved uh, to a small incubation team in, in 2012. Um, and that incubation team uh, ended up growing into the HoloLens team. And that that was where I met most of my co-founders. Um, so we, we had worked at at microsoft on hololens for for several years and really what we were doing was building demos for early prototypes of hololens and then we were also working on some of the apps that shipped with the uh development kit of hololens
1: um and and for <clears throat> listeners who don't know which i imagine is not many of you but for those who don't hololens is microsoft's augmented reality headset yeah that's correct so when you joined in 2012, those, I mean,
2: years before it shipped, what did it look like then? Because it's a pretty sleek sort of self-contained device now. It looked like the Doc Brown helmet from
0: Back to the Future. <laughs> like it was, and, what, and complete what, with DeLorean. Did, did, did you have
2: to push a computer around in a shopping cart? Was yeah.
0: So so the, there was there was like <laughs> this crazy thing that kind of looked like a bear trap that you would wear on your head, and then there were cables coming off the back that went to. A cart that that someone would like literally shiver oh, around someone. behind you, um, that that had a bunch of computers on it. I think that was the the, the first time that I saw a HoloLens demo. That was my experience, but I mean, it was it was unlike anything I had ever seen. Um, and honestly, it was that was an amazing job. You know, building video games for a futuristic holographic computer for for four years. That's a that's a dream job. It was a, it was a great experience. So we spent time working on that and, you know, shortly after the development kit shipped for HoloLens, it was clear that at least in the near term, uh, HoloLens was going to focus a little bit more on the enterprise application space. There were some really great use cases there, but, um, you know, we weren't really looking for HoloLens in the game space as much. So it was clear, like, you know, my skill set just wasn't really needed in that space um, anymore. And, And so I started... Um, looking around for what was next. And, and actually several people who who had been in Microsoft and kind of in the game space, I think, um, ended up doing the same thing. There are a couple other startups that, that were formed from, you know, ex-Hololens folks. So after some time, you know, I was really excited about the AR and VR space. But as far as like vision for what was next, I don't think I contributed much beyond You know, there's a tsunami out on the horizon. (laughs) We should probably learn to surf. Like, it it was really my co-founders that that came up with a lot of where where we've we've moved now, Um, specifically with with, with Rec Room, um,
2: and. And uh, you know, kind of, kind of starting out with that Wii Sports of VR. Mm. Um, oh yeah, this is this is an interesting um, nuance here. So, Nick, we've chatted about this. Uh, you know, Against Gravity is a very opinionated company, and you've thought a lot about a lot of things, and you do things differently than a lot of other companies. And and one big one is you have one product, but your company's name is in no way the same as your product. What was your philosophy behind that? <laughs> uh, I, it's actually more common in the game space.
0: I think one of the nice things about it is um, when you have a different product name than your uh, company name, it gives you a little bit more creative license to play around with what that product is. Um, that product can fail and you don't fail. Your company doesn't fail. And so what we wanted to do was we we wanted to start from, from scratch. And we, we had this idea about how development should work. And that's really like against gravity. It's that ready fire aim approach. It's that learn by doing approach. Um, but we wanted to develop a unique identity that was, um, that, that we could experiment with a little bit more. And that was rec room. And that, that was kind of the Wii sports of VR.
1: Um, and was the intention when you started always that rec room was going to be, you know, go into the thing, or had you thought about this was where you're going to start and we might go in other directions too?
0: Oh no, we, we started and we weren't sure if we were going to do AR or VR <laughs> or, you know something else entirely we were really excited about the possibility of of social we felt like we had been living in the future for a couple of years playing around with hololens and it was just so clear to us that there was there was something really transformative in the way that you could use these these technologies to communicate with other people it was really going to change the way those communications were going to work largely how we started in vr was we we contacted pretty much everybody who made a headset Um, and we were like, Hey, you know, we're, we're a company, like you you should send us a headset. Like (laughs) we don't really know what we're going to build, but, um, and, and valve, uh, who, who, you know, makes steam. They, they got back to us that day and got us a headset and that was how we,
1: and and you guys launched Rec Room right around the same time that, that the, um, that the Vive launched, uh, publicly, right? We launched maybe like Three or four months
0: after, okay, I think I think I was still at Microsoft when it when it launched, and shortly after the the Hololens uh, dev kit launched, we left, and and then we're we're looking around for stuff to do.
2: And uh, something that strikes me, I actually have a hard time describing Rec Room to people sometimes, and I think I, so. I just f- finished reading Ready Player One, and I it's the best way that I can kind of describe it is like you know like the whole con the whole book of ready player one, like it is a world with many other worlds and you can kind of move around between them. And it's, you kind of have to experience it because it's not like, Oh, this is an app that exists in VR that is single purpose. It's like, here's a universe that's been created. Some, some of it by the company, some of it by a bunch of other people, and you can do a bunch of different things in a bunch of these different worlds. When did that start to be the case instead of we are a single purpose thing? we were really excited about social and we we saw this enormous
0: opportunity in front of us for what could be done in social and what could be done in so many different segments um i had been pretty you know wisely warned by a couple people that that it's far more common for startups to die of indigestion from too much opportunity than starvation of of too little and and so it was really my co-founders that i think Started along this path of Wii sports for VR because it was a really great place to start for for social Um, Casual games are a really easy thing to pick up and play They're a great way to break the ice between strangers Which is pretty important in VR like the social density is lower So you're not as likely to find one of your you know top five friends in rec room right now So a lot of times you're playing with you know strangers from um, Elsewhere and so you need you need some common ground to kind of form there and then it was also a very modular format. It was easy to like drop new things in, pull them out, change them. We always had this idea that we wanted the content in Rec Room to be more than just the content that we authored. Uh, but we knew that that um, we could build a great base with uh, kind of this concept of Wii Sports um, and go from there. I think with a lot of ideas, they are both familiar and differentiated. And Wii Sports of VR was definitely that. Like you have a strong sense of what that is when you hear it, and then when you go and play it, um, because of the controls in VR and the immersion of VR, it felt really different. It felt yeah. very
1: differentiated. As Ben said, and you know, we could talk for hours about how cool Rec Room is, but really, you just you just take our word for it. You got to go try it. <laughs> but I want to get into your the seed round because um, the story here is really cool. So, and and I think you guys did a couple things, a couple really key things differently than a lot of. Uh, startups do them, one, you guys were very almost prescriptive in the amount that you wanted to raise and the terms you wanted to raise it on, which is not the normal advice that people get. You know, if you Google or talk to folks about how to go raise your seed round, it's like, well, I, you know, I, th- I think we need about this much money, but you know, you're the VCs, you know, you tell us how much we need. Uh, that wasn't the approach you guys took. <laughs> how, how did you think about it? Uh, so I think that ready, fire, aim approach also applied to our fundraising <laughs> process.
0: <laughs> and, and so Uh, you know, I think a lot of what we were doing was, was learning by doing while we were raising on our convertible note, we were out, um, chatting with, with a lot of institutional investors and, and, you know, honestly, like a lot of those early conversations, you know, didn't go well. And we, we learned, (laughs) like we, we got better and better at, um, at making progress, talking about what it was we wanted to do. Um, and, and we started getting more interest. Uh, so we had we had been raising on this convertible note for a while, and we started getting interest from uh, larger um, funds. And the convertible note just wasn't really working for them. Like it it wasn't it wasn't set up to it yeah. to accept some of these. And, and for listeners, out.
1: a lot of listeners are probably familiar with this, but when you're in in super early stage startups and seed rounds, you could raise traditional equity, um, which has happened to Rec Room when you start getting to bigger rounds, uh, you kind of need to do. Um, but you can also raise smaller amounts with convertible notes, which is debt that converts into equity. And a nice feature of them is that you can continually add people to it on the same terms as others. You don't need to have a close of the round. So you guys kept going on the convertible note.
0: Yeah. So we we were doing a convertible note. And, and you know, as you said, we were doing it in kind of a rolling fashion. I mean, over six months, we were collecting, you know, one check at a time. Um, but yeah, as we started moving into more institutional, um, investors, uh, we started needing to, to have some, some different terms. So a was one of the first people that, that believed in us and really took it, took a, a big dive. And that, and that was who we figured out like, Hey, these are the terms we're going to raise about this much. Um, and we're going to, we're going to go out with this about, uh, valuation and that we basically took those numbers down to the valley. And yeah. we were like, this is what we're doing. Um, do you want in or do you want out?"
1: um, yeah, which is so great. And it worked. I mean, it, uh, it,
0: yeah, surprisingly so
1: you guys, you, there were comments. Know. I mean, people were definitely like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, and non, and so you, um, uh, you raised $4 million right in mm-hmm. that round. Uh, and you had your valuation and what it was and, uh, and you went down there and told everybody what it was going to be, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Nick, one question too, for, for listeners, when you say one check at a time and you were going around and and circling capital, what do those check sizes look like at the friends and family stage? I mean, it was, it was largely around 25 K. Um,
0: there were some that were, that were, were higher than that, but yeah, generally it was, it was 25 K.
2: That was that million dollar. I, I I hesitate to call it a round, but million dollars of convertible notes. Yes, that's correct.
1: What today would be your pre-seed round. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the other non-traditional thing that you did with your fundraising is uh, you guys didn't have a de- Well, you had a deck and then you trashed the deck, right? Well, so as,
0: as I mentioned, we were talking with institutional investors early and those conversations weren't, weren't going great. And I think largely it was because we were much better at building products than we were at building PowerPoints. And (laughs) imagine that investors
1: (laughs) fund PowerPoints, they should be funding products.
0: (laughs) And and so after after 90 days, there was a product in in market and what we would do is just say, hey, we don't have a deck, don't come by the office. We're not giving you a demo. Just go download the app. It's free. And like there's always people on there to play with you and like let us know what you think. I, I would occasionally hop in. We we had a room in the in the app that um I actually had like a pull-down projector that had my deck on it. Um, <laughs> you had a fundraising room in the app. That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, and so occasionally I would like go in there and and show people that um it always got chuckles and I think it, it actually it helped people move beyond like oh this is more than a game. Like there there are there are applications for this, you know, well beyond gaming. Um but but it was a great filter for us for you know, investment partners, because it told us like if, if they wanted to chat with us, like one, they had spent time in the app. They, they knew what was going on in there. Um, they had VR headsets. They had probably played some other stuff as well. And so they had a better sense of the market. We weren't going in there and educating them on like, here are the VR headsets. Like we're on this one. I think it just kind of upped the, the level of knowledge for the people we were talking to generally.
1: Qualification is something that is so important. And, uh, And I just think this was brilliant, like finding a way to like, you know, pre-qualify anyone you would talk to if you're just like, no, I'm not sending you a deck. (laughs) You have to like know the landscape, have access to a headset, be willing to try my app. If somebody makes it through that funnel, like they're probably going to be pretty interested. And oftentimes they would they would have really great
0: suggestions for us. I mean, even if they weren't investing, you know, if they spend an hour in the app, they could they could tell us like, hey, this thing was broken, or I didn't like this, or I didn't understand that. And, and that was, you know, that was helpful feedback early on. I would much rather get the feedback on my
2: product than on my deck. So it's, it's worth pausing here for a minute, just to like, Nick, I know we've said a lot of nice things about you on the show already, but like, 90 days and you guys had a product in market i don't don't care how good it is it was good enough for investors to go and experience or people to go and experience you had users especially in vr where it involves 3d modeling and all this rendering stuff and it's on a new technology stack where there's not a ton of familiar developers i mean that it's it's kind of mind-blowing i would i would say it was all our team was really cohesive and
0: unified from the start and they're very very talented um, I can take l- literally no credit for it because I was, during that period of time, I was out unsuccessfully showing our deck. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so it was really, it was really, you know, my, my co-founders and our early hires that that were hustling. It takes a lot of bravery to like put out a, a product that that doesn't look the way that you want and doesn't operate the way that you want and only has 10% of the features that you want. Um, but I, I think, you know, my co-founders were really brave in, in deciding like, hey, the right way to build this product roadmap is to get this out in front of people and see what mm. they do with it.
2: It's it's interesting from a philosophical perspective, because I'm, I'm a believer in that too, of get it out, get user feedback, iterate quickly on that, ship often, And I think that's that's the mantra and that's the drum people beat these days. I think that's a lot easier in emerging markets where you don't have user expectations set and where users are preconditioned to not be harsh. Oh, absolutely. I think there's, you, you guys were um, pretty fortunate there to be in a, a situation situation like that where you know there's many other industries where if you were to launch a mobile productivity tool or a like a strava competitor or something like that yeah. where it's the feature set is well yeah. understood it's it's like there's so many things that are table stakes that you would just get laughed off the face of the earth before you could even you know really show it's what your product vision yeah. was
1: i mean we always talk about tech themes before we're ready on this show but but this <laughs> is a really good one right like it's almost it's kind of like if there's Not yet a product in market that has product market fit, like Strava or you know whatever in whatever category, you can get away with it. But once there is, you can no longer get away with it. (laughs) I
0: I think one of the the nice things about being in an emergent market or even being in the the of of disillusionment um, is like it, it really is a gift for product development because user acquisition is free, competition is functionally you know quite low. Um, quality expectations are very, very low. Um, and so it really, you can build a product in a much more iterative fashion. Um, and honestly, the market is a little bit more efficient. I would say like if no one's playing your VR app right now, it's, it's probably not very good. If no one's playing your mobile game right now, like there could be a whole host of problems. It could be because you were, you know, not spending the proper amount on marketing or you were marketing to the wrong group or you had the wrong color on your icons tile or yeah. or maybe it's because the app store gods like didn't smile on you that day. Um you know, it's such a noisy market and in many ways it's it's very um there are a lot of irrational actors in it and that and that can be that can distort the market in a way that
1: that can give you bad signal about your product. So, okay, so back to the fundraising. You had investors that were <laughs> willing to meet you in rec room <laughs> so you'd qualified them after after that you do your first meeting with them you have your first conversation they try the product what was the cadence of interactions after that
0: it really ranged it it w- could be months it could be <laughs> it could be hours i think if people were really interested it was it was fast it was like i would get another call as i was ubering away from you know, their, their headquarters or something. Um, And then there were a lot of other ones where it was like, all right, Hey, well, you know, we'll stay in touch. I I think one of the things that I learned and I, I, I try and pass this advice on is let's keep in touch is probably no. Anything other than yes is probably no. A hard no is pretty rare actually in the investment space. People kind of want to keep their options open and, and maybe that entrepreneur will surprise you in, in a couple months. But yeah, I think it's easy to, to hear those things and think like, oh, I'm on the right path with 20 yeah. firms, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and realistically, you're you're not. Um, it was clear to us like who was interested because they, they would really hustle to get us to the next stage and the next meeting
1: very quickly. And what was like the, you know, even for you guys, a very successful seed round, you know, what was the conversion rate through that funnel from like, do that first in, you know, first solid good interaction or, you know... Um, high fidelity interaction uh to yes i'm actually interested versus the yeah let's stay in touch so there were
0: there were generally like three stages so the first was they had most firms had someone who was kind of qualifying was doing the kind of first check on you like oftentimes that would be like a a principal or an associate or something like that um if you get through that one then generally you're chatting with with one partner um and then if you get through that then you're chatting with like the full partnership there's the 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 monday meeting that you're yep. you're you're going to um i i would say our our clearance rate was you know we were getting through maybe half to a third of the principals associates then maybe like 20% of the partners and then by the time we got to the partnership meeting generally those those went well yeah but oh, i mean wow. we, that's a huge drop off there it it was it was pretty i there was a bunch of people that were just like vr no you're doing anything that sounds like games, no. Again, we got better at telling the, st- the story of what we wanted to do. We were kind of like, you know, w- really we have aims beyond games, but we think this is a great place to start and we think there's a lot to be learned
2: here. Um, but it was it was a little... It was a little too much for, for some people. Mm-hmm. There's a well-trodden uh, path of, hey, here's our wedge, and then we're going to expand into this big vision. And by doing this wedge, it'll put us in a good strategic place to achieve this big vision. But there's definitely the potential to not connect those dots enough where you could say like, oh, we're going to do we Sports. Then we'll be everything in, in VR. Like Then we'll be this whole world where anybody can interact socially doing anything. And it's like you you need to self-select into being a believer, I think, to, to help cross that chasm.
0: I think also while this was happening, like the story was one being improved verbally, and then it was also being improved like by my co-founders literally day over day. So we would, we would meet in rec room and then they would see more evidence that, you know, no, this is expanding over time. And, And actually there's quite a few things that people, like even in the early days we were seeing people use it for, virtual meetings they would hop into one of the rooms and like use it. we had a whiteboard in one of the rooms and people would like use it for virtual whiteboarding
1: <laughs> sessions <laughs> which um, is awesome because it's public right yeah so people is this would be the equivalent of just like walking into a starbucks and uh having a you know business meeting and yeah <laughs> yeah i mean in the early days it was public
0: now you can have your own private rooms and private instances and everything but in the early days yeah people were using it for all manner of things that we never we never expected people were giving talks in there and
1: <laughs> like I, it was it was pretty wild yeah That's awesome. As you were interacting with people on the investor side, like what impressed you? How were you qualifying them? Thinking about who you ultimately ended up wanting to work with?
0: I would say the thing that was impressing me the most was, you know, we were like living and breathing VR. We were in there all the time. Occasionally we would run into investors where they were just drop shipping in. They spent five to 10 minutes listening to my spiel And then they would have something, they would have some new perspective that I had never thought of. They would be like, have you thought of this? And it just, it would totally open up this, this new path that I had never considered from being, you know, six inches away from it. And it was those sort of insights that were really impressive um, where they were, you know, they had spent so much time with so many other companies that they could, they could just see these fast lanes. and, and I, I think those, those were the things that impressed me the most. Um, are, are there any of those that you implemented that you can think of? Some of the, the early ones from from Sequoia were really focused around how, how can you help enable more of the creativity that you see in the community? We were seeing a lot of creativity early on, and they were pretty excited about like, all right, well, how do you, how do you close the loop on this? Like, how do you get them creating? How do other people know what they've created? How are you... Ranking, discovering all of this stuff, um, and and I think w- it went from us thinking about it as like, oh well, this is an emergent property of the app, to oh well, maybe this is, it's maybe like this re- is really it's like the retweet, the thing that we should be we should be building around. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So I think that there were a lot of very influential uh, discussions that we had we had early
2: on, just about how to how to approach these these um, kind of things. Hmm. You know, you guys have been, you, you just launched the ability for people to create their own sort of large scale objects and, and worlds. For a long time, you guys were the only people that could really have a, a large amount of uh, um, sort of world creation for other people to interact within. I mean, how, how long of a journey has that been? And, and can you talk about like today a little bit, what does it look like for users to be able to have their own creativity inside Rec Room?
0: Yeah, so we started by building out a series of our own rooms, and each of those rooms has, you know, an environment, and it has a series of objects with, with behaviors and logic in them. In, a couple months ago, we started experimenting with uh, what we called the sandbox machine, which means you could go to any room that we'd built, um, and you could spawn any object out of the sandbox machine. So if you wanted to uh, play. Tag with the bow and arrows on okay. the disc golf course. Like you could set that up, uh, but it was all very temporal. Like it didn't really last, it didn't really um, stick around. So recently, we we've allowed people to like name these rooms, save them, add logic, and in you know the ability for these objects to respawn in certain spots, um, set room limits, set who can edit things, and we've also really uh, beefed up something we call the maker pen and that's basically a a creation tool that lets you draw any object that we don't already have so if you need a snowman you can draw a snowman if you want to draw a car you can draw a car if you want to draw a giant castle you can do that like all with the maker pen um and and so the combination of those tools really unlocked a lot of creativity and that's that's currently what we're looking at now is like how do we how do we keep enabling people to do more of what they want
1: to do so as you're getting towards the end of the process, you've, you've met lots of folks and people are coming in and, um, and then, and then you meet Sequoia towards the end and, and they get excited. They, they call you back right away instead of the, (laughs) a week later, (laughs) how did the process wrap up with them? And what were the key milestones through that? I met them towards the end of my,
0: my process. And, um, actually when, when I was talking to other, other people, um, about Sequoia, I just, you know, Everyone just had these, you know, amazingly positive things to say. They have a, a tremendous reputation, and um, and and so I, I was, you know, kind of nervous and intimidated to to go <laughs> in there and, and talk. Um, and and they were amazing. They they were so friendly and humble and engaged and really knowledgeable about the product and the space. Um, and and so after those meetings, it was it. it I was, I was sold. I really wanted to work with them. Um, and so, so as soon as we, you know, we heard back, it was
1: like, all right, great. This is, yeah, this is happening. Let's do this. How long did it take from your kind of first interactions with them to being finished or to them saying they wanted to work with you guys? It was
0: pretty fast. I think we, I think we did maybe two weeks at the most, maybe less. I think we did, we did one call. Um, and then I, I flew down there. Uh, and then I flew back to Seattle and I think like very shortly after getting off the plane, I like left my bag in the car and then flew back, <laughs> flew back. For the, the next meeting. Um, did you
1: actually leave your bag in the car?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it was like
2: literally the next day. I flew <laughs> back for for another one. Um, well, and in yeah. that, like in raising around like this, what does diligence look like? Like, what did in those two weeks? You know, what company information did Sequoia need from you? Um, you maybe you personally, what kind of research was done?
0: I I think we were generally very open um, with with them they, they they wanted some data around you know analytics like what do, what do user behaviors look like here or what do you know your cohorts look like we were providing that kind of data but i mean honestly there was very little data to to go on for them you know the product had not been out in the market for a very long period of time um and the company itself was very very young i think most of the evidence was like in the product already it was just like wow this had been built pretty quickly um this team seems pretty scrappy um and we were we were not spending very much money so i think it was it was clear that we we had like some levels of capital efficiency going on
1: mm-hmm. you go from being a scrappy startup you launched a product in 90 days it was clear it was something was starting to work and now you have a lot more millions in your bank account did anything change in the company did it impact your philosophy about shipping quickly you know and and how have you how did you think about then deploying those resources we tried to change
0: as little as possible We were like, look, this formula is working. So what this round has bought us is time. We can keep doing this formula for a longer period of time. Like in terms of what changed, it was very, very, very little. Were they on board with that? Like, Yeah. Yeah. I think they, I mean, this was part of our pitch when we were going out and talking about what we were doing. You know, most companies have the chart that's like up and to the right. And we were like, look, this is going to take a while. Like we're in the preseason of VR. We don't think the regular season's even starting <laughs> for like another two years. Like, here's what we want to do. Forget about the playoffs. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I think in a large in a lot of ways you'll get you'll get the investors that you you ask for, and if you're honest about what your what your strategy is when you're fundraising, like y- people will self-select.
1: I just want to highlight that that is such a good point. Tom talked about that. Tom Alberg on the Amazon IPO about how Jeff Bezos that's one of his favorite sayings. You get the investors you you ask for, and like. Living it, you know, myself and Ben too, like, it is so true. The best thing you can do for, you know, the long-term health of your business and relationship with your partners is say, ask for, you know, be clear about what you are and ask for what you want. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of freak out too about this notion of delayed gratification that like there's some dirty secret, like, uh, for example, VR headsets may not ship as many as we're all hoping and praying that will happen, you know, and, and this is thinking a few years ago, having a sober head about that and being like, yeah, like we, we think there's a chance of that. Like here's our plan if, and when that happens. In fact, even if it does do gangbusters, we recognize the price points are really high right now. It's connected to these big, gigantic, you know, tethered computers that people basically need <laughs> gaming rigs yeah like being super upfront and just recognizing hey you know we're going to be incredibly well positioned when this when the wave does hit you know i I think that not only uh, creates a great relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur but it also it, it lets you sleep easy at night because you're you know you've made the right promise to the world and to yourself and to your team that like we're well equipped to handle this, but um, we're super realistic about the way that it's going to go
0: yeah I mean keep keep in mind we we had started working on Hololens in 2012 and it took four years for you know <laughs> us to get the dev kit out the door so we like we were very early um, and and I when think was when was oculus founded 2012 uh, no, I think afterwards. I had been working on Hololens for a while. And then the Oculus Kickstarter happened. Wow! Like it. Wow! Yeah, it. Hololens was in development for for you know quite a long time because um, it it had been been worked on you know before I before yeah. I got there.
1: It, it, what actually? Total sidebar here. We'll we'll get back to the story, but it came out of Connect, right? Yeah. Actually, it, most of the people. It's Alice Kitman's
0: Alex next Kitman, thing, right? Yeah. The man's a genius. Like <laughs> he he's really a Alex is really a one of a, a kind mind. That guy is, yeah really 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 smart i think he just thinks about consumers like hardware in a, in a very different way than hmm. anyone else so i'm anxious to see what what you know what he's got cooking, cooking with uh, windows mr yeah
1: yeah okay so a big thing that changed when you raised the round is you had an official board now and sequoia was on it what was that like uh going from All you guys, you were focused on raising money. The rest of your team was focused on building and shipping the product and iterating. But now you have a board and you're a real company and you have to manage investors. Um, How's that transition been? Uh,
0: Again, I think we were trying to keep as much of what was working, working. So for us, very little of the actual product development changed. We still try and get updates out to Rec Room um, every every. Uh, two weeks. So we want meaningful updates that go out every two weeks that it's not just a bug fix update. It's like real features that, that users would notice and care about. Um, I would say what the board has has provided is w- when you're in that really tight iteration loop, you can occasionally get caught up in the details and the board is there to remind you Like, are we making progress towards this long-term multi-year vision that we've laid out? Are there any things that we are ignoring now and aren't investing in? I mean, I think when you raise money, largely what you're doing is you're, you're, you're getting permission to work on a higher value, longer term problem. And I think the board is there to make sure that,
2: that like progress is being made towards Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. That's such a good framing. Because you do, you just get so caught up in the minutia. You're thinking about like, what are we doing in the next two weeks and what are we doing in the two weeks after that? And, you know, the pitch deck or lack thereof that you made six months ago is just not at the forefront of your mind.
0: Yeah, I think it, it's it's a great formula for creating longer term
1: goals and holding yourself accountable mm-hmm. towards, towards those. I'm reminded, of course, again, of, you know, Bezos and uh, Amazon's whole thing that I, I really, the more I think about this i think is a key part of their competitive advantage is that they're willing to invest over five to seven year time frames uh and work and iterate towards you know a project that might not bear economic returns for that period of time mm-hmm. um and really that is a lot of about what raising money as a as a startup especially in a new market like you guys you know is about
2: oh yeah for sure you mentioned you know, that you basically went with this, we want to raise $4 million at this valuation. How'd you guys come to four? Was it a, a thing you wanted to accomplish and it was going to take $4 million to get get you there or a certain amount of time that you wanted to operate? How'd you figure it out?
0: So we, we had built a bunch of financial projections that kind of showed, okay, with these different hiring ramps, um, here's about how much money we're spending. I think really what we were looking for was we felt like there was going to be this inflection point in the market um, for VR and we felt like it was going to come, um, once we saw a headset, uh, which is kind of like an all-in-one, so no cables, no PC, um, kind of the capabilities of the Vive or the Oculus. So six degrees of freedom tracking. Um, we felt like this was, you know, this was a couple of years out, but, but we wanted to, we wanted to be building towards that and have the right product for when that, that hit the market. And so a lot of our plans were built around that. It was like, all right, how far can we stretch to, to make it towards that? Um, I think we're still probably like, you know, 12 to 18 months out from that headset. But f- for us, we were really looking towards like, all right, how can we further our goal so that we have the right product when that inflection point comes? You don't have to answer this, but who do you think it's going to be? I The one that I've seen that's closest right now is the Oculus Santa Cruz. Hmm. Um, so they've, they've shown it, uh, I believe, at their last oculus connect um and it's a you know six degrees of freedom you know it's not tethered to a pc or anything it doesn't have any uh, external cameras it looks you know amazing you know there's no release date announced yet so i think that's you know that's (laughs) what we're anxiously waiting for yeah Mm -hmm. um we're you know we're keeping an eye out for when oculus has more to share on that uh, but we're really excited for anything that has that kind of shape to it. I think, yeah. I think there's just so much complexity in the VR space right now. It's, like, it's not easy to set up. It's, it's not in every person's product yet. Um, but I think once you can take it out of the box and it just works, like, and you don't need to check and see if it's compatible with your computer, um, I think that's a, that's a big game changer.
2: We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple.
1: Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired, Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product.
2: Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private
1: integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence.
2: So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. All right, Nick, so one question that we had is is basically did you consider alternate fundraising scenarios what if you had raised less what would against gravity be today if if sort of the round came together differently one of the things that we did decide pretty early on
0: um after that 90 days was we had a product and we didn't have much money and we decided to release that product for free Mm -hmm. Um, so it was not generating any (laughs) revenue uh
1: which also we should note that wasn't like a super obvious decision. I mean, if this were like the mobile app store, of course you'd release it for free. But many VR experiences were paid at that point in time. Right?
0: Most were paid, and and actually that was part of our acquisition strategy. Was we thought we thought most VR content was single player, pretty expensive, and and relatively short in terms of you know how much time you could spend in there. And we were like, Rec Room certainly has its its flaws, but um, you could spend as much time as you want because the content is really other people and we're, we're going to make it free and that that's going to be that's going to be the way that we we get a toehold in the market. Um so that was that was our thinking up front. I think if we had not raised funding, we would be focusing on I would say running known frameworks of monetization inside of Rec Room. So we wouldn't be focusing on longer term problems where where like learning is is really it's unclear what the best practices are. I think because we've raised money, we're able to focus on things like how do you focus on um, abuse prevention in VR? How do you focus on moderation tools? Like that is an open-ended problem. It will be an open-ended problem for years to come. I think if you look at any social app on any platform, um, it's a huge portion of, of their investment. And we're able to focus on that in a very big way. Um, and and you know that makes a that makes a big difference. I think we're also able to focus on things like user-generated content. How do you enable people? Uh, to express themselves and their ideas and make those things come to life and share them with other people. Um, we're able to focus on those problems with, which aren't revenue generating um, because we have, we have breathing room with around. I think if we, if we didn't, you know, we would, we'd be making and selling hats, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, we, yeah. they're much less interesting features um, and they're you, much less
1: open-ended. On that. I don't know i have ever asked you. Uh, In some ways, like the world you guys were coming from with, you know, Forza and and some ways how Microsoft's thinking about HoloLens, like um, I could imagine it would have been easier tempting to be like, yep, we're going to box this software and sell it for 60 bucks a pop. Like, (laughs) did that ever cross your minds or was part of this vision from the get go being like, no, this is going to be free. This is going to be social. um, We're going to do this differently. We definitely had conversations early on
0: about like, should we? should we make this 1999 like what what does it look like if it's 1999 um i think we were really inspired by the development of something like like My- Minecraft i think Minecraft really grew up in public um and it earned its complexity by interacting with its community it didn't come out day 1 and say like oh here's everything you can do with minecraft I mean, it slowly got more and more complex over time as people learned the systems. Um, and as its community taught other community members, the systems like Minecraft doesn't have many tutorials. It's because there's millions of tutorials you can find online from, um, other players, uh, teaching each other. And I think what we believed was in order to get that kind of development cycle going, in an early market with very few people, it had to be free and, and putting it behind a paywall was just going to make that flywheel spin slower. So it, it, it was a risk, but it was a calculated risk. It was like in order to build
2: the product that we want, in order to get the feedback that we want, in order to build the community that we want, it has to be free. The, the point about the fact that other people are the content and you guys don't have to engage in level building at a frantic pace in order to stay one step ahead of the community so that you know they'll have something to do you don't I mean, have it's to pump just, out
1: new dlc everything <laughs> totally. we still do though
0: yeah we've got a new one it's a new pirate quest coming soon so yeah, you sweet. can like swashbuckle with uh, a couple of your friends <laughs> yeah awesome. it's gonna be great yeah, we really enjoy it. Um, but we're we're also, you know, we we love seeing the creativity of the community. They come up with
2: so many ideas that we yeah. would have never even thought of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really I guess it's an internet theme. It's a thing that you couldn't really do without everybody being connected to each other all the time. It's like, you know, if you were playing Goldeneye uh on N64 alone, there's one exact experience that you can have every time. And no matter how many times you go through it, the, the, the thing's gonna be exactly the same every time. But in a world like Rec Room or let's say on a platform like Facebook, every time I load up the news feed or every time I go to the the same level or world in Rec Room, it's going to be a unique experience because there's all this different content. So you can keep going through the same trotted ground over and over and over again and have different unique experiences that have sort of um, longer engagement cycles and higher retention than you would otherwise.
0: There's also this amazing ability for expression. I think there are so many people that that have these these amazing ideas, and and a lot of times the tech tool set is just kind of outside of their reach. And I think if you look at things like Unity or Blender, you know they've opened up creativity for a, for a lot of folks. But it's it's still not everyone. Like not everyone can create 3D content. Not everyone can build a game. Um, and so what we're aiming for with Rec Room is like literally anyone can come in and build something meaningful that expresses their personality.
1: Yeah. You were telling us before we started about the frozen castle.
0: Oh yeah. Somebody, somebody built a, you know, a replica of the, the castle from frozen, including like costumes from the, the movie that you can, you can, you know, um, stick onto so your avatar. Amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've seen amazing stuff like that. We've seen comedy clubs. We've seen two rec room, Users who who met in Rec Room um, decided to get married in the real world, and they they actually had their their wedding reception in Rec Room. Um, <laughs> they invited like forty of their closest VR friends. They they made a VR bouquet for the, the bride, they made a wedding cake and they, you know, they actually had a ceremony with, um, so with vows <laughs> exchanged and everything. Um, That's yeah, awesome. everybody Were wore their, wedding crashers. Everybody wore their fanciest avatar clothing. Um, yeah, it, it was, I mean, it was amazing to, to see like that. That's that so was cool. never something that we would have expected at the start. And I think those sort of emergent activities are the things that like really inspire us to keep adding new mm. stuff.
1: It's so funny when, uh, when facebook was just starting when when i was in college um i had uh, a good friend still very good friend that i met at a summer program i did during college and uh, he went to school in boston and uh, my wife jenny and i went to school in new jersey and then uh, the next year jenny was studying abroad with one of her friends from princeton in paris and my buddy uh, was Facebook friends with Jenny, and this was all it was still like colleges only. And uh, he posted on Jenny's wall, saw a picture Jenny had posted of her roommate in Paris, and said something like, "Hey, you know, um, thanks in advance, Jenny. I know you don't know me very well for introducing me to your blonde friend." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then they got married a couple years later, wow. and that was like that was like for me that moment of like, man, this platform is like, <laughs> and this has already happened in Rec Room. That's so cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think I think one of the other things that really got us excited about about Rec Room because I mean the internet has ushered in several social platforms. There was something just so different about social in VR. If you look at social on the web, it's it's actually largely asynchronous. It's largely text-based or photo-based and and so with VR it's it's all real time and you get these subtle cues like people's head tilt you see their hand gestures and it really feels like you're in the same room with somebody who maybe is on the other side of the world you know, we, we've heard from several people that they have some fear about social interactions in the real world, but but um, having, you know, the ability to practice in VR almost like helps <laughs> wow. them, helps wow. to, like reduce their, their social anxiety. There's tons of people in the world who I think their their well-being is not being satiated by the social software that's out there. Like, I think in many ways, we're, you know, we're more connected to more people now, but I think in many ways, people feel more alone, Um Due to due to, you know, some social software. And I think what we want with Rec Room is really to foster some sense of well-being. Like we really want this to be a place that you enjoy spending time and you look back a month from now and you you think like that was really time well spent. Like (laughs) I'm really happy
2: that I went in there and spent two hours hanging out with people. Do you get the reference there that you just made? No, this <laughs> literally, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's word words this last week was, "We want time on Facebook to be time well spent." <laughs> I <didn't
0: know> that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean we funny. we have we have
2: always yeah we have always focused on that.
0: I think often we regret the time that we spend on Twitter or Instagram or something like that. Um, but I think very rarely do we regret the time that we spend with our friends, uh, you know, at a restaurant. And that's what we're trying to build in VR. We're trying to build that feeling where it's where it's like th- this is real social interaction. It's not a facsimile
2: of it. It's like it, it re- we're really I, here together. Look, I, I know we've doted on. Um you know on rec room this whole episode but like that is what it felt like this weekend we were hanging out and time was flying and you know it wasn't because the specific activity we were doing was cool it's because like we were sort of just hanging out together and and like of course doing those quests was also cool but
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean anytime you're hanging out together and you have you know bows and arrows and swords and paintball guns not yeah not a bad time Probably going to be time well spent.
2: That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So
1: before we move on
2: to tech themes officially for the episode, Nick, I just wanted to sort of get your take on the VR market today versus, you know, what a lot of probably overly inflated expectations were um, a year or two ago. And also, uh, how has the dominant platform um, that people are using sort of shifted from your expectations or has it matched? Sure. So... I think right now there
0: are probably around four to perhaps five million high-end VR headsets. And these are things that give you kind of the facsimile of like hand motion and and you kind of get the sense of walking. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're often referred to as six DOF headsets or six degrees of freedom headsets. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I think depending on which marketing report you read, it might have been, you know, hey, everybody and their brother has... Three Oculus in their, their home. <laughs> I, I think there were some very optimistic reports
1: out there, uh, but I think including some by like Goldman Sachs and like you know. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, hey, I think they just published a new one like earlier this week that where where I think they're predicting you know thirty to sixty million by twenty twenty. I think the, the tricky thing is like these things grow exponentially; they don't grow linearly. So so when you m- miss, it feels painful in the the earlier years for us specifically we were like man this is just going to this is going to take 10 years like it's just going to take a long time before this is this is a mainstream thing we're in the we're in the PDA phase of mobile phones like the the iPhone moment hasn't happened yet the, the BlackBerry moment probably hasn't happened yet um, so i think we're still waiting for those moments but we can see them on the horizon and i think there are so much that you can learn as as a software developer now, right? There, there is a critical mass of users that go in there every day and, and they're very vocal about what they want to do and what they expect the software to do. And you, you can be learning from that right now. And so that's, that's really where we focus as far as where the dominant platform is versus my expectations. I think the one that's really run away with it, that surprised a lot of people, including myself is, is PlayStation VR is currently the highest selling of those high-end headsets. I think the reason is it's the cheapest and it's the easiest. There's something very simple about it. Like if I have a PlayStation VR and I just take it out of the box, it's going to plug into my PlayStation and it's going to work. And I think that that simplicity is missing in in other segments of the market right now. People are working on it, but I think it's shown that consumers are reacting to the ease of use. They're reacting to the, the lower price point. And I think it bodes well for anyone who's betting big on, hey, if we can make this easier and cheaper, more people are going to do it. I think there's a, there's another camp in VR that's like it needs to be way more immersive with more pixels, a wider field of view, haptic body suits. Um, Ready player I,
1: I, one sooner rather than later. Hey, right?
0: I look forward to all of those things. Like, I, I w- Rec Room will happily take advantage <laughs> of each and every one of those. Um, but I don't know that those are the barriers to, you know, another 10 million, 50 million people mm-hmm. experiencing this.
2: Tech themes. Tech themes. Let's do we it. Finally arrived. You know, Nick, you had mentioned that these things happen exponentially and not linearly. Um, and I think I'm stealing David's theme here from our notes, but t- technology waves and the difficulty pr- to predict them, the fact that they grow exponentially, it looks like in until an inflection point, it's just not going to be a thing. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, it's it's going insane, and this is the the new technology paradigm that everybody is using. And of course, we have the sort of Gartner hype cycle where you get this this overinflated expectations, and then the crash. But there actually is real long term value building. But you know, uh, if we look back at um, computing paradigms from uh, the the PC to the internet to mobile, the things we've talked about on this show, the sort of trillion dollar waves, it's still unclear what the next trillion dollar wave is going to be. And and there have been like three things that I, I could have sworn by um, that it's it's just not that obvious until you're actually in that vertical screaming pace going skyward that that is indeed the thing and that's the wave that you're on. And I, the three things to get specific were uh, machine learning, uh, cryptocurrency and, and VR, like each of them four moments of time and some currently now feel like that there's no doubt in my mind it's the next internet or the next mobile and we just don't know yet it's hard i think
1: the for me then we can let nick react but uh, i would i would take the other side of that coin though too which is like if you're actually going to build something meaningful in these waves that are coming you need stamina you know more than anything else Mm -hmm. right and like I mean, when was, when was Coinbase founded? Like 2012, 2013? I I think I saw it at South by in
2: 2013.
1: Yeah. So probably 2012. Like, and we're now in 2018. And it seemed like
2: a, a, a pretty established company then. Like it was, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and, uh, it just takes, you know, that's why I think your fundraising journey is so interesting, right? Like, because, um, that potential is there and it is growing exponentially. And and that means it's going to grow very slowly for a long period of time. Uh, and you guys need the stamina to, to go through that.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the way we look at it and, and I kind of mentioned this earlier is being able to build product in that trow is also like it, it, it can be really helpful. You know, your, your competition is limited. Your user acquisition is very low. Um, and you, you really can have a direct voice to customers, um, which, which you can't have at a a different scale. I think we went into this one with eyes wide open that it was like, look, this is just going to take a long time. And if you're not, if you're not looking for something that's going to take um, you know, ten years like this, this might not be the market for you. There are plenty of markets where you don't need to wait that long. Um, they have different dynamics and they have different challenges. But I think this one, yeah, stamina matters more than than
1: others. Yeah. That brings up my next tech theme, which is uh, I, I hadn't written it down until uh, you brought it up on the show. But <laughs> you get the investors you ask for. Like it's just you know we talked about it earlier. I'll just underscore it again. Like you need to be very thoughtful about what your company trajectory is going to look like, what you want it to look like, what reality is probably going to dictate. It's going to look like, and then find the right folks to be investors and partners along the way that kind of share that same vision in the world. Um, because you can have a lot of conflict if you don't,
2: <laughs> I got one more before we'll, uh, ask Nick if he has any, but mine's really domain depth of founders. I think that Nick the fact that you and your founders your fellow co-founders got a product out in 3 months that was something you were willing to show investors and could have users actually using in a new paradigm like unless you had been experimenting with this stuff for the last several years and some of the only people on the earth that understood how this paradigm could actually work i i don't think you would have that incredible speed to market and, and you can disagree with me on that, but um, I, I think some of the best companies are formed when somebody takes a deep dive on something and thinks deeply about it for a while and tries all the angles, and then it becomes a thing and they start a business in that area.
0: I think, I think any startup is really about learning. I think you're really trying to optimize for who can learn the fastest and who can compound what they're learning fastest. Um, and... And if your knowledge is growing in a compounding rate, then like a small advantage at the beginning can can make a meaningful difference. Um, but that's still how we go into work every day now with Recrum. is like, what can we learn today? What don't we know? What assumptions do we have that are, you know, we haven't tested or this other data point? from some other product is proving incorrect. Like I think that's the way that you have to approach things in these early markets is there's so, there's so much learning. There's so much that we take for granted now in the mobile space or like the, the, the web space where people are just like, yeah, this is just how you do it. This is just how <laughs> yeah. you lay out you a website. Put there. a this hamburger just, button there. Yeah. 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 This is just how you, oh, yeah. you know, run an ad
2: campaign. But like somebody had to go through all the pain of that, of figuring that out the first time. Oh my um, gosh. It's like when Alfred was talking about the uh, user acquisition through the, um, advertisements and TSA. It's like, now that's a regular thing. And we think of that as an ad unit. Someone had to like try and pioneer and figure out if that was cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. Or
1: even like in mobile, like how many, how many years did it take before like free to play, like became mature and like people realized that that was, you know, how mobile was games were going to work, you know, probably arguably to the detriment of, you know, humanity, but, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, it takes a long time to figure these things out. I mean there were so many there were so
0: many assumptions that we made early that were that were wrong and I'm much happier that we like course corrected a little bit every week than we had a massive course correction 2 years later. And I think that would have happened if we you know had had developed Rec Room in secret for 2 years and then yeah. tried to launch it in its perfect form. We we would have just built the wrong thing.
1: Yeah, that's actually I'm going to sneak another one in here. I'm so glad this came up on our our first ever, you know, fundraising episode on acquired like this is like such a classic mistake that uh, I've seen so many founders make and, and then investors make it too time and time again. You get sucked into this like, oh, we're going to go build something in the lab. We're going to go cook in the lab you know, <laughs> to joke about Dr. Dre. Uh, you know, I guess he can do it, but um, but uh, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work because you're not getting exactly to your point, Nick, like in an early stage startup, especially in a new market, your lifeblood is your user feedback and, and when you're in the lab, you're not getting that. I can say that it, I, I don't
0: know if it never works. I can just say it would <laughs> not have worked for us. Like our original idea, um, you know, there, there was much of it that that was correct, but there was much of it that would have led us down the wrong paths. And so I think that market interaction is what what course corrected us over time. I think we were we were humbled a little bit here and a little bit there. Carve outs. Carve
1: outs. I mean, I. Oh, wait, wait, actually, did you have any. Tech names, Nick. That you want to? No, I think add. you guys. I think you guys <laughs> nailed it. Nice job. <laughs> Thanks. What's what's your grade for this episode? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh,
2: yeah. I think we'll skip that part. Yeah. Mostly because it just doesn't fit this. Format, we're we're
1: learning. We're learning. Yeah. We're, we're making changes. We're learning. That's right
2: our carve outs are not like supposed to be about the episodes, but this is just like the last book that I finished. And we already mentioned it, but like if you haven't read ready player one and you think this episode is in the ballpark of interesting, you should totally go read it. It is like super, you could, you can blow through it pretty quick. It's super, super readable. It's really fun. Um, it's prescient. Like I, I think that a lot it's written in 2011 or 2012. And a lot of the things, um, that, people are talking about today with not only vr but um you know the direction the world is going from a political perspective and from like a global warming like there's just a lot of things that people are talking about that are major issues of our day that were sort of themes of the book five six years ago
1: and i think the movie's coming out in like a month or so
2: yeah i can't i think it's coming out in march yeah i can't decide if i actually want to see it or not oh i can't wait to see it (laughs) Did, did you see Ender's game I do
1: no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, just gave a little problematic, but
2: um, yeah. Anyway, really, really cool book. And uh, I'm actually very curious, Nick, do you like to liken rec room to a ready player one like world? Or do you like intentionally stay away from stuff like that? There are a number of sort of canonical novels in
0: the VR space. I think, I think that's one. Um, and snow then crash, snow crash yeah. is another one. Um, I, we don't, we don't normally reference them. Um, but I think it's, it would be hard for you to find any VR entrepreneur that hasn't been influenced by those books. Um, I mean, I've, I've read it. I, I loved it. Um, and I, I think, I think it's definitely influenced some of our thinking as has, um, as has snow crash. So I I think there's plenty of people that are, are inspired by, you know, the
1: ideas in that book. My carve-out is appropriate for today. It was recommended to me by Nick.
2: (laughs) And it's another
1: Neil Stevenson book. And it's another Neil Stevenson book. That's right. Uh, So the book, Seven Eves. um, Such a good book. Such a good book. It was... Well, okay. So here's the thing about this book. Everybody should read this book. It is like... It is, I don't even, like, the whole construct uh, is just, like, the setup is something that, like, really makes you think, really, really makes you think, and is very cool. Uh, but I have to say, like, it is a hard book. It is, quote-unquote, hard sci-fi, and, and it means hard in every sense of the word. Like, it is... A, not a short book. Not, not short. Uh, extremely technical. Uh, long 20, 30-page passages about, like, the technical aspects of surviving in outer space when humanity is reduced to like a couple hundred people, which isn't really giving anything away in the book. Um, anyway, uh, very, very worthwhile read recommended me to me by Nick. So Nick, thank Nick, you.
2: Nick and, uh, president Obama. Oh, He's and also president- on wow. his, uh, his reading list. And wow. I have no idea That's how the good. guy found the time, but I love 70s. It's
0: a great book. It's like three great books. Yeah. <laughs> and well, one.
1: Actually, I think it would have been Better if it had been a trilogy. Hmm. Uh, in instead of one book. But I can see why you wanted to get yeah, it all speaking out.
2: Speaking of once. stamina, that book that, that book does yeah. David <laughs> has reward stamina. I can assure you Hollywood will make the movie a trilogy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean they might have to do a trilogy just for the first part of the book.
2: <laughs> I would I would love to watch a
0: movie of that. That would, yeah. that would actually be really interesting. Yeah. All right. So for for mine, uh, I'm gonna go with with a video game, I'm gonna go with Zelda Breath of the Wild. Oh, nice. It's been out for a while. Um, I I recently got a Switch and and recently finished it. Um, and I bought the Switch for that game. I just heard from so many people that it was it was it was amazing. And and actually, the reason I wanted to to list it as a call uh as a carve out was. Um, I think you often hear this, this phrase that like, there's only two strategies in business, bundling and unbundling. <laughs> and I, I think it's been used like <laughs> quite a lot. Um, yeah. and, and I, I think in many ways it's very, very accurate, but I think it reduces what you're bundling to, to a commodity. And I think if you look in the video space, um, and you look at Hulu and Netflix, a lot of what they're doing is, you know, bundling and unbundling the same sets of content, um, I basically bought a $400 video game. Like I bought the switch for Zelda. And I think it goes to show that like there, there are some content that transcends that bundling and unbundling strategy where people will do, you know, borderline irrational things to go and and find this content. And I think, um, bundling and unbundling, it's really like taking advantage of an arbitrage opportunity. But I think as more people go after that, the arbitrage opportunities disappear. And so you're going to see the value of this tentpole content, really being more and more um, important for, for uh, distribution platforms. Um, and I, w- I was reminded of that
1: after playing that game. It's, it is magnificent. It is amazing. I, it's funny. I'm, I'm considering doing the same thing, buying a Switch it for... It was absolutely worth it. Huh. So the uh, I think during the launch period of the Switch, uh, Breath of the Wild was, I think, the first in history game that had effectively a 100% attach rate to the console, meaning that... I mean, I'm sure there were a few people who didn't, but just basically 99.999% of people who bought a Switch during the launch window also bought Breath of the Wild.
0: Wow! The last time that I can remember anything like that was, I, I do remember hearing that the original Halo had, yeah. had at, there were at times where there had been more copies of Halo sold than Xboxes. <laughs> and and I, I had heard that the, it was similar with the Switch was... Yeah. Was there were more copies of Zelda sold than than switches at certain points? I so actually wow. got Zelda before I got the Switch. Like I get <laughs> Zelda. Mick is the reason for this stack. It was awesome. really
1: depressing for like
0: a week. I could just stare at the game. Oh, and that's like the ahead. worst.
2: It's like when your phone case comes before your new yeah.
0: phone. Okay, so like
1: what, what uh you know, we're extended carve out section here. Uh listeners, feel free to, you know, jump off if you want, go write us a review. <laughs> I'm stealing Ben's line. But uh okay, so so what's your take on the switch? In general, and and uh, also, do you primarily play in TV mode or or handheld mode? I
0: when when I first saw it announced, I I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't know why anybody would want to do this. <laughs> this looks really weird. When I first saw ads for it, I I, I I did not think it was going to be successful. Um, but I I am really like I'm really falling in love with it as a as a console. It's really great. Um, I spend about fifty percent. Uh, of it in uh, handheld and then 50% docked to the screen. Um, it's amazing if you find yourself on a plane a lot as well. Like if you're traveling a if lot, you're fundraising. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a great device. Um, yeah, I think if you think about like the Clayton Christensen innovators dilemma where, you know, occasionally people will, will go past what is needed for consumers. Um, I think there's definitely some of that going on in the in the gaming space I think we've we might have gone past what what uh, consumers need in the CPU GPU I think what really people are looking for is meaningful experiences not necessarily more and more realistic graphics and I think Nintendo has capitalized on that in a in a, in a good way it's not as powerful as the ps4 it's not as powerful as the Xbox um, but it's
2: you know um, it's a, it, it provides a very different value proposition well I gotta get one there we go. (laughs) I mean, I got Apple music at one point just to listen to Taylor Swift. So it seems like I need to get the switch just to play this game. (laughs) Well, on that note, uh, Nick, where can our listeners find you on the internet?
0: Oh man. Um, I, I have a, I have a pretty limited presence outside of VR. So
2: I'm in rec room at Nick. Um, and that's it. That's you're the blowing only your way cover right now. <laughs> no, no, that's it. That's the only way you can get to Nick. If you really want to talk to Nick, then that's the filter.
1: Yeah, there you go. That's the filter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe.
1: So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally, Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes,
2: we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller.
1: The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead.
2: Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs, since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips and these lower energy costs get passed on to customers.
1: It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or
2: your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes. As far as calls to action for us, we would love a review on iTunes. I even wrote calls to action in the script. I don't think I was supposed to say that. we have a Slack, acquired.fm. I think we hit 1150. We're talking about all this stuff and sometimes we're dropping hints as to who the next episode uh, will will be on. So join us for some little uh, foreshadowing. All right. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time.